I mean, a lot of people do. I mean, most people, Commissioner, do earn the same amount each fortnight. Well, in the public service they do. I'm not sure when you're on a benefit that that's really true. Welcome to the Westminster tradition where we are unpacking lessons for the public service, starting with the RoboDebt Royal Commission. In 2019, after three years, RoboDebt was found to be unlawful. Through the Royal Commission process, we've found it was also immoral and wildly inaccurate. Ultimately, the Australian government was forced to pay $1.8 billion back to more than 470,000 Australians. Over this season, we're going to dive deep into the various aspects of robo-debt, what it was, how it got started, and why it was so hard to stop it, all with the lens of what public servants could learn from this debacle. Today, we're going to start with what robo-debt was, how the three of us found ourselves compulsively watching hours of evidence each evening, and deep diving into Royal Commission documents and why we think it's important to pay attention to what it's told us about public administration. My name is Alison Lloyd-Wright. I'm a senior public servant in South Australia and I'm here with fellow senior South Australian public servant, Caroline Crozabalo. Hello, Alison. And recovering public servant, Danielle Elston. <laughs> Hello, Alison. So, Danielle, what are we here for? What can people expect from season one of the Westminster tradition. This is our sizzle episode. (laughs) (laughs) Look, there's more than 250 hours of video evidence on YouTube for anyone who's interested and more than a million documents associated with the Robodet Royal Commission. We can't take people, even attempt to take people through the TikTok of every event, every witness, every briefing, every meeting. We are assuming a certain amount of interest and knowledge of Robodet if you've plugged us into your ears. Um, What we're most interested in is not losing all the lessons for the craft of public administration that have come from this work. There's a real risk that this Royal Commission is seen as political, yeah, as a political scandal. Mm. Um, and in fact, the scheme was kind of conceptualised, built, delivered, defended over and over again, and ultimately ended by the public service. So what we want to do here is work through what were the reasons for that and how can public servants improve their craft, like their thinking, their practices, how they make relationships, their integrity, how connected to outcomes they are, to make sure this can never, ever happen again. Yeah, because that's one of the things that's been really striking to me in watching some of the evidence is just how many things from my own career you think, oof, there but for the grace of God, right? Absolutely. How easily could work that you have done become robo-debt? So what actually is robo-debt? To ask the question that uh, people keep asking me when I tell them I'm recording a podcast about <laughs> robo-debt. For those of us less deeply in the trenches of this issue, what is it? Well, Australia has a social security system that provides income support to people who may require it because they're unemployed, they're studying, they're temporarily like sick or unwell, maybe they've got a disability. Uh, these payments under an Act of Parliament or a law are based on how much that person will earn in a fortnight. So people have to report their income to Centrelink, sometimes on the phone, they might be on the phone for an hour waiting, but most people use an app or the login system to say how much money they've earned. Right, so and so on week, to, fortnight to fortnight, one fortnight I got a lot of shifts, I earned yeah, uh, 500 bucks. And, and then, well, seasonal work's a great example. So for three months, you know, each fortnight you rang up saying I'm earning $1,000 a week and then you might hit a season where you don't work at all. And so you have yeah. to report still, so you have to ring up and say I, I earn nothing. Or I used in. to work at Toys R Us at Christmas. Ah, <laughs> terribly seasonal. Terribly seasonal. 
So if you earn over a certain amount in a fortnight, your payment goes down or you don't receive it that fortnight, depending on how much you've earned. What RoboDebt did was look for discrepancies between what citizens had told Centrelink they'd earned each fortnight and the information that the Australian Tax Office had. The catch was the tax office only had income recorded for the entire year, not each fortnight. Mm. So Stuart Robert was one of the many ministers in this story to have this portfolio over the time of the scheme. He explained it as, I'd often give an example where if over 25 fortnights you earn nothing, but on the 26th fortnight you earn a million dollars, in that case you are actually entitled to earn welfare for 25 fortnights. I'm so disappointed you didn't do the voice, Danielle. <laughs> I really feel like there was a rich opportunity. I am a terrible uh, impersonator, unfortunately, Excellent. and will not be attempting any voices. <laughs> right. We'll, we'll just the shame. <laughs> Listeners, just imagine the sense of smug self-certainty <laughs> in the movie that it I also, I mean, yes, it's the correct example. I'm not sure who's earning a million dollars a week, but um, Stuart Roberts' friends are obviously quite different to mine. Um, <laughs> so I feel we're, we're narrowing in on the nub of the issue here. <laughs> so that is how income support payments and social security in Australia works. That's what the law says, and it's the way it's always been. What RoboDebt did was it averaged that annual figure from the tax office over 26 fortnights and assumed your income each fortnight. Then it assumed that you had misrepresented your income when you'd reported it to Centrelink. Mm. So then raised a debt based on mathematical miscalculation, reversed the onus of proof, and made the recipient prove that the computer was wrong. So it's two things that are quite new there, isn't it? It's mm. the averaging. Yeah. Whereas Stuart Roberts said, you know, whatever you went in a fortnight was the right thing to be calculated against your welfare. And the second is that you you as the recipient now have to prove that the calculations, the system derived for you were wrong. Yep. And a kind of underlying assumption that maybe you were lying. Yeah. I mean, you are effectively saying, excuse me, are you a liar? Mm. Um, so there's always been the compliance to make sure people were getting what they were entitled to. But before all of this, the government would go to the employers and ask for pay slips or the banks and ask for statements. So the burden, and it's a really big administrative burden, of the checking pro process at that time was on institutions, not on individuals. Around the time RoboDebt was being created, the Abbott government developed this statement of removing burden from small and medium businesses. And... Buried in some of this robo-debt stuff is that requesting this information to double-check that someone was paid correctly was now considered really onerous on the business. I do struggle with that because the industrial Gosh. relations and Australian tax office laws require businesses to keep that information. So we decided we, the Abbott government, <clears throat> that's, that's not a phrase I ever thought I'd use we with, the Abbott government decided that... Uh, it was too onerous to ask small businesses to check how much they'd yep. paid you. To go back but they could ask you yep. to confirm how much you'd been paid. It was paid. too onerous to go to the people who, by and large, had myob or zero, you know, scroll down Actual in the list to 2015. Not and just some pay slips in yep. a Tupperware tub under your bed. Yep. yep. And it was too onerous to ask them to go into zero and go to year 2015 and spit out the pay slips for Alison Lloyd Wright. So recipients of payments, you know, you can't, you can't say they're a homogenous group. You can't say they're a homogenous group. However, the Royal Commission evidence d demonstrates that even senior officials in the department knew that the profile of customers 
included above average rates of moving house all the time, mm-hmm. above average rates of lower levels of literacy, um, you know, really having complex vulnerabilities. So there's actually a, a witness who lived on a bush block with no electricity and required a, a mate to give him a lift two towns over to go to the post office. Which is, and tell me if I'm wrong, exactly why we have a social so- <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> net, right? Absolutely. But so, like, knowing that, knowing that was the profile of the customers, the government decided it was less impact on the recipient to chase down all this kind of proof than it was to go back to banks and businesses to confirm. So, in all, just shy of half a million Australians were issued with debt notices that were incorrect, and that added up to $1.8 billion. Mm -hmm. And so, this process of robo-debt went on for some time. Caroline, take us through the kind of the timeline. What's the tick-tock of when robo-debt starts and how long it goes and how it evolves and changes over time? Yeah, so, you know, like in the early 2010s, they are already using some of this ATO data in DHS to do a bit of what they would call case selection. So there's about 20,000 compliance actions a year. In 2014, the good burgers of the Department of Human Services get this idea about how they can scale it. How can we make it happen much faster across a much broader range of people using computers and algorithms? By the middle of 2016, they are soft launching the online compliance initiative and they do that about on about a thousand cases. Has so, an ac- I assume it has an acronym, OCI? Yes, at this point they are soft launching OCI, the online compliance initiative which is this process of kind of what they're really testing is the process of pushing the onus onto the customer. Mm. So they're no longer doing the going and getting the business to do the thing. They're pushing it out to the customer and the customer is engaging with an online portal and they're saying, how is all of this going? Not terribly well. Anyway, by September of 2016, there is a decision made that they're going to go live on the system. Now, we will talk about this as well, but worth saying that that decision is made against the advice of the branch responsible. They're now talking about sending out to 90,000 in the last three months of the year. At the end of 2016, the beginning of 2017, we have an almost immediate flood of complaints. The ombudsman initiates its own um, motion inquiry. You're starting to see people walking through the doors of the legal services centres and AAT appeals follow not far behind. So they're starting to notice complaints within what, a year, two years of the system going live? Within two months of the system going live. So they go live in September 2016. It all hits over Christmas uh, Christmas 2016, January 2017. Minister Tudge hits pause on the use of averaging alone to issue debts. So in January 2017, he's like, uh, maybe we will just hit pause on that until we're sure that the system is user-friendly enough, until we're sure that like people are actually getting the letters because, of course, they've moved houses. So, they so hit- he didn't hit pause on the idea that averaging was a problem. Oh, God, no. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, he hits pause on the the interface with the with people receiving Even these worse letters. worse than that, he only hits pause on the final debt notice. So right. he doesn't hit pause on the first three letters that say there's a discrepancy, we think you owe this amount of money. He only hits pause on the final one that says you do actually owe this amount of money. 
And they do a whole bunch of work. And this is where we start getting into different acronyms and they start developing something I think called CUPI, which I thought was a mayonnaise. (laughs) Is is this very Mad Men? Like (laughs) change the name? Different dog food. (laughs) Yeah, exactly right. But by sort of September 2017, they're still sending out lots of first and second notices, but not the final debt notice. But they're confident that they've got better case selection. PwC has written them a much better algorithm. Pretty sure they've got an improved customer engagement portal. So that's where they're at. Cabinet says, all right, you can restart issuing these debt notices. That's fine. But don't issue it to old people because they've... Oh, sorry. Don't issue it to vulnerable (laughs) clients, aged pensioners. Don't do that. And don't issue it to anyone who's got a vulnerability flag against their name. So... Off we go. So now we are September 2017. They're sending out 20,000 letters a week. This process is really ramping up. By the second half of 2018, they've had to employ like a 1,000 new people in DHS to answer the telephones because it turns out you can't just entirely automate this process. Wow. The Senate has launched its inquiry into the robo-debt scheme. Politicians are mad. The community is mad. There's some amazing journalism being undertaken. There's some really great community activism. Um, But, you know, things are still happening in, in Centrelink. At the same time, there's a whole bunch of legal action. And finally, by the end of 2019, the federal court has ruled that it is, in fact, illegal to do what they've been doing. And you can see that uh, by December 2019, the government announces... I believe it called it like a modest refresh of the system, <laughs> which was actually the ending of the entire <laughs> process. Uh, and by July 2020, there's a $1.8 billion settlement impacting 470,000 welfare recipients. And the reason we get a Royal Commission, and I think we should touch on this, mm. is it wasn't just that people got issued debt notices that they didn't owe. It's that the issuing of those debt notices had catastrophic consequences. Or some people. Yeah, one of the uh, one of the really tragic parts of this tale is the way in which uh, there's a real group of people who find the stress of this formal letter in their lives that says that they might owe thirty thousand dollars to the government paralyzing. Mm. And instead of being able to take any of the eight very hard, obscure routes to try and work out what's going on, the paralysis leads to, you know, a deepening of mental illness and and in a number of cases, suicide. Yeah. So how is it that we've decided to sit here and record a podcast on the RoboDebt Royal Commission? What is it about this process that fascinates you, Danielle? Oh, look, it's a quite a, a long list. Like I, I could, you know, I can run down rabbit holes of my fascination with complaint systems. I can I can look at... Um, and has and will. And have and will. And that's why there are multiple episodes. But I think if I was to narrow down the two reasons that of all the reports and royal commissions that um, have been around, that this one is the one that has really grabbed me is the fascination for me is about the public service getting further and further removed from the people that it serves. Mm. So I'm, I'm, I am concerned that public servants and uh, use government services less than most people yeah. and we use them less than the people who use them the most and we've professionalised and that's been appropriate. You know, you need a tertiary degree for nine out of ten or more than that jobs to become a public servant now. 
we that that's not an inappropriate thing i just worry that we're becoming more and more disconnected from mm. the people who need us to do really good work um and, and the reality of their lives and the reality of their lives and i'm um, having watched all the evidence how far removed they are from ever spending any time with someone who's living week to week someone who you know doesn't have a car to get to a vaccination hub mm. who's off a transport route who's prepaid plan has run out for their phone this month yeah and if you if you are so far removed from those experiences how well can we possibly make public policy um and the second part for me is the craft of public administration so this royal commission has showed us how the sausage is made (laughs) like i've I've been interested in royal commissions for a long time. I have watched them, other inquiries, Senate estimates. I watch inquiries for fun. That's how I get my jollies. It's (laughs) It's why we love you, darling. It's a terrible, terrible thing. But I've never actually seen anything where from beginning to end, from concept to cabinet to, you know, junior burgers on the phones talking to customers to the media to the entire how the process happens i've never known any other inquiry to take us from beginning to end Mm. on that um and so i'm really passionate about a public sector workforce that's really clear on its purpose and its obligations and is inspired to do its best work and i think when you've got something that's so clearly laid out how we operate it's incumbent upon us to get right into it and figure out what there is to learn from it yeah, absolutely. And then Caroline, who is further down the rabbit hole on this one than any of us and listeners, flew to Brisbane to attend some of the commission hearings. Look, it was a birthday present to myself. Yeah. <laughs> some people go to spas, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Get a massage. No, Royal Commission. No, uncomfortable plastic chair in a nondescript building is how Caroline wanted to Whatever. spend her special you time. you guys were reading my live tweets. Oh, we're not judging. <laughs> I'm just asking You're you in to a explain space. to our listeners what it is that fascinates you about the Royal Commission and um, RoboDeep. I mean, I think uh, you mentioned it before, Alison, there is just a sense of could this have been me? Yeah. You know, I'm a public servant who's worked across a range of different environments and some of the things and some of the things that people say are familiar. And fortunately, as I've kind of gone deeper, some of them are not familiar as well. Mm. But I think there's kind of, um, I am not gleeful in watching the people come unstuck here. I have quite a profound amount of sympathy for the public servants more empathy with the public servants, actually, because almost no one gets up in the morning to do a bad job. No. No one starts their day thinking they're going to do the wrong thing. And somehow they did something that, you know, shades into evil. Like it really does shade into evil. So there's something for me about that that I'm just so curious about. And I was thinking about it this morning. So, you know, one of my first jobs in government is I worked in defence and and I worked in international policy and. I was deployed in Afghanistan um, in the years of the in the year of the first of the murders outlined in the Brereton inquiry. I was a policy advisor in the Middle East, and I was thinking about how little I knew then, and I was a baby, and all of the things. How you can be enrolled in something that is morally awful Mm. without really being aware of it and thinking about it so that's just been my kind of you'll find throughout this that my interest is in the tangential people the people who didn't really know that it was going on 
but showed no curiosity about that. Mm. And I think that for me is my yeah. kind of key learning. How about you, Lloydie Wrighty? So for me, I suppose it's about uh, the culture aspects are probably my key point of interest on this. So how did the culture of DSS and DHS and the actual personalities and the way they conduct themselves at work and with other people Mm -hmm. facilitate this system existing and living for as long as it did? And within that, I suppose I'm really interested in the question because, again, this is one I reflect on a lot. We don't stop a lot of stuff in government, right? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. That's so true. We're very good at starting. We're very good at starting. We're not very good at stopping. And we're not very good at reviewing partway through. And so what really fascinates me about this more than anything is, Mm. I guess, some of the culture questions and the questions of leadership, but also some of the, like, what were the signals that maybe it was time to have a a look, hit pause, Mm. think about what we're doing, have a nosy... And, I, and just thinking about how regularly it is our practice in government to just defend something, right? Say all these complaints, all these court cases, they're because people don't really understand what we're trying to do, don't really understand the systems we're working with. And we go immediately to defence rather than like, and you said it, Caroline, curiosity about mm. how that is the case. I love the thing about that, Alison. It's like mm. one of the key lines of defence is, oh, but they're talking about OCI, but we're on QP. Like, there's just this brilliant kind of way in which the public service itself enables defence by being a little bit adaptive and a yeah. little bit reflective. But not enough. But, but but also, I mean, when you when you hear that, that's a lot of not my job, not my problem. Yeah. So, when you, like, it's interesting to me how many public servants have not been interested in the Royal Commission because I don't work in welfare or I wasn't a part of it or Absolutely. obviously 10 people were not good at their jobs and that's how we got here. Yeah, I don't think this is a and bad like, no. situation. No. no. This is a bad system. Yeah. Yes. And a system that propped it all up. Um, and, you know, I think as we go through some of the characters. So why should I, they be interested? Why should they be interested in this podcast and in this Royal Commission? So part of it for me is, you know, it's cost. Well, we'll never know. We'll we'll know later what it costs because you get a budget announcement for a royal commission and, you know, shocking development lawyers can be, like, quite expensive. So it was announced. (laughs) Absolutely. But it was announced as a $30 million royal commission. I have an inkling they're not – that's not what it's going to cost at the end of the day. Um, So they're really expensive um, and labour-intensive. So the process of collecting the evidence with these powers that are just so far beyond – FOI or ombudsman's or even courts, depending on kind of what what process you're in, is that we've spent a huge amount of time, two KCs, um, collecting all this information and public servants have had to go through documents going back 10, 15 years. They've looked at the process from all the angles and I think anyone who has an interest in public administration should be interested in what such a forensic and expensive process tells us. Yeah, I think this is the most thorough and in-depth review of the actions and activities of the public service that yep. we've ever had Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, definitely. What about you, Caroline? Why should people be interested in, in what we're going to offer them over the course of this series? So I think uh, there's a real theme around improvement. So we're all committed public servants or recovering public servants, but we're people committed to the public service Mm. 
And I think if you're not reflecting on how you can do your job better, then you're probably uh, not living up to the to the promise of public service. So for me, I think there's something about thinking about improvement. And then the other thing is, like, just I have been lucky in my life to be surrounded by ladies like you who really think about and reflect on your practice as public servants. But I know not everyone has that. Mm, yeah. Uh, you know, you can come and listen to this podcast and hear what we're thinking about and kind of that might prompt you to be able to have some conversations with your public service colleagues about the practice. Absolutely. And if you look at the people involved in the RoboDebt Royal Commission, did they have someone that they could check in with? Like, And so I guess my last reflection on what you can expect from us uh, and why you should listen is you don't have to be an expert. You don't have to have followed along the Royal Commission. Uh, we're very lucky that Caroline and Danielle have. Uh, <laughs> me, perhaps a little bit less so. So I'm going to be your guide for people who are not uh, as closely connected uh, to the testimony, to the outcomes of the Royal Commission um, as we take you through what we've learnt. So that's what you can expect from us in future episodes. Stories from the Royal Commission, the RoboDebt Royal Commission, and what they teach us about the craft of public administration. Till next time. This podcast was recorded on Ghana land, and we recognise Ghana elders past and present. Always was, always will be. Hey, this is one of our early recordings. We're still getting it together, and I had COVID, so stick with us. Just some appropriately bureaucratic disclaimers. Those of us in the employ of the state government speak in a strictly personal capacity, consistent with the Public Sector Code of Ethics that permits public servants to promote an outcome in relation to an issue of public interest, in this case, the betterment of the public service. Nothing we say should be taken as representing the views of the government or our employers. While we've tried to be as thorough in our research as busy full-time jobs and lives allow, we definitely don't guarantee that we've got all the details right. If you want rigorous reporting on RoboDebt, we recommend the work of Rick Morton at the Saturday Paper, Chris Naus and Luke Enrique Gomez at The Guardian, Ben Elton McCrikey, and of course, the RoboDebt Royal Commission itself. The first eight episodes were recorded before the Royal Commission launched its final report, and so don't benefit from the great wisdom of Commissioner Holmes. Please feel free to email us corrections, episode suggestions, or anything else at the Westminster Tradition Pod at gmail.com. Thanks to Pampot Audio for our intro and outro music. Till next time.